Welcome to the Europe in the World podcast. In this series, we will discuss the very relevant topic of European energy policy and the unfolding energy crisis. We invited four different guests to join us in this series. This podcast project is overseen by Dr. Kaya Shielde, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean Monet Chair in European Security and Defense. My name is Lisi. I'm a master's student in international affairs at BU. And I'm Greta, also a master's student in international economics. I'm Jacopo, an undergraduate senior in international relations. I'm glad to welcome Susie Denison, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations. Susie Denison specializes in strategy, politics, and governance of European foreign policy, other than migration and the toolkit for Europe as a global actor. Moreover, she also leads the European Power Program, which studies how the EU fits in the international system. Recently, she co-published the EU Energy Deals Tracker, a highly detailed report of the energy deals that member states and the EU are now making with third countries in the prospect of advancing energy security in the long term. So I'm very excited to talk about this and more in this interview. Good morning, Ms. Denison, and thank you for taking the time to join our podcast. Thank you for having me. So the first question I have for you is about COP27. So at the time when we were recording this podcast, COP27 ended and many observers considered it a mixed bag of results. One of the main issues, if not the main issues in the negotiations, was how to channel resources to the global south to help countries mitigate climate change and build more resilient economies. In this context, the EU is considered one of the most progressive international actors for climate change mitigation and adaptation. At the same time, however, it continues to import fossil fuels from third countries, most of them in Africa. So what does the EU do to mobilize investments for climate finance on the international arena? Yeah, I think um, that COP27 was indeed um, a mixed bag, both in terms of the results that came out, um, very disappointing progress overall on um, driving up uh, national commitments to um, decarbonisation. Um, but um, the the sort of the headline positive news was indeed the, um, the loss and damage fund, um, which came into place. And I think the EU's role was also um, quite mixed um, uh, in terms of, of the, the way that it's um, engaged on this. I think on the one hand, the right through the conference until um, a couple of days before the end, the EU, um, along with the US um, and other um, G7 powers, were blocking the idea um, that, that climate finance should be on the table at all um, in, in the discussions and certainly blocking the idea um, of the fund. And um, this was allowing the member states who were pushing um, for this to be the, the sort of the central theme, um, as, as the Egyptian chair said, even in the run up to COP, um, uh, for them, it was very much a kind of a climate finance discussion. This was essentially allowing this kind of elephant in the room to hijack um, the broader process. So I think it was um, really positive, both for the issue of climate finance itself, um, but also for unlocking the, the broader UN um, process around climate action. But in the last two days, the EU led by I think it was Germany put on the table this proposal for a fund and gradually brought um, other players on board. Um, and I think that what that did was create a kind of a second order success um, from this COP27, which is that the process isn't dead. 
um, because I think that that was a very realistic prospect um, ahead of Sharm El Sheikh. Um, but now, as you say, the challenge is how to mobilise um, investments into into that fund. It's no mean feat. I think arguably from a European perspective, um, European governments have already gone a lot further um, than, than other players, particularly the US and China um, in, in terms of the, the, the climate finance issue. And so their sense is that um, the game now is about pushing other players um, to go further. But I think that what Europeans have to face up to is that what they need to be doing now is um, climate leadership by example. And what I mean by that is if they want others to go further, they're going to have to go further themselves too. I think there was indeed an accusation that was being bandied around both at COP27 and in the run-up to it um, from African leaders and other representatives of the global south um, uh, that um, the European governments were somewhat hypocritical in their approach to climate because when the chips were down and the energy crisis hit um, Europe as a result of our decision to take a tough stance against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that suddenly our principles around uh, the speed of the energy transition and the necessity of decarbonising as quickly as possible went out the window. And I think that um, the challenge now is for Europeans to show that it is possible to, uh, to have both, to have energy security and to keep climate action on course, because this was um, the sort of the very principle of the European Green Deal when um, Europe became one of the first um, global players to come out with an actual action plan, that, that Europe would um, would take the first steps, would show um, that these things were possible, in some ways would, would take the risks, um, and, and um, then that would push others um, to come on board too. And it seems really that that's where we are now um, with, the, with the whole climate um, finance agenda. Just sort of a final word on the US. I think that there are growing tensions in the transatlantic relationship after the introduction of the Inflation Reduction Act. And there is um, a sense, certainly in many European capitals, that while the US is taking a kind of subsidy-led approach to um, the climate transition um, in the US, um, uh, and um, the EU has led a, a kind of a regulation um, first approach um, with, with European businesses, this creates competitiveness challenges for European um, companies and, and sort of puts um, our ability to play that leadership role in jeopardy. I think it's really incumbent on European governments to kind of to stay the course um, and um, to show that the, 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 the model of a, a kind of a rules-based approach which fits within the WTO framework and allows all um, global players to move on together is genuinely doable. Um, and so, uh, in a way, I think that this would be a kind of a bad moment for Europeans to, to, to kind of shift their approach and embrace the more kind of nation first um, approach that we've, that we've seen um, in the IRA for, from the US. And I think this kind of feeds through um, into the climate finance question too, that what we need to see is a kind of a doubling down on the commitment to in internationalism um, uh, in this discussion, not nationalism in the climate agenda. Yes, this is absolutely very interesting. And I want to remain in the in international arena and talk about your latest uh, report, the EU Energy Deals Tracker, because I think that this connects very well to the discussion we just had. So the report tracks uh, energy deals that member states did either by themselves or by means of European Union institutions with third countries. And the whole goal is advanced energy security in the long term in the uh, rush to decouple from Russian energy. Many of these deals have been made with African countries and um, or Middle Eastern countries. Uh, 
So my question for you is, how are coordination mechanisms between the EU and individual member states shaped um, when they make energy deals with third countries? Um, yeah, I think that in a way we haven't seen a shift during this energy crisis in the role that the European Commission is playing on um, uh, sort of coordinating European efforts to build energy sovereignty. But we have seen um, that they have been kind of willing to take iterative steps towards pushing to a more um, collective European approach, partly at the behest of member states. Um, so, you know, I, the sort of the big discussions that I think have developed over the course of 2022 are around the idea of a common purchasing platform, um, the idea that European states would um, communicate together um, rather than go separately um, to energy supplier states um, and try to neg- use economies of scale to negotiate better deals in, in, in intensely competitive environment. Um, And that discussion um, has has taken some positive steps forward. But I think that there are real issues around the willingness in member state capitals to be transparent um, about that process is that that process, sorry, that um, the European Commission um, is still struggling with. And of course, um, I think the other sort of areas where the European Commission has had some success is on the demand side, pushing um, forward proposals for um, member states to commit to reducing um, uh, their, their use of gas and then their use of energy over the course of 2022 in order to ensure that there's, um, the supplies that we have for this winter will be sufficient. And those uh, those things have been positive. Where it's been more challenging to get member states to work together um, has been around this kind of issue of the price cap on, on oil and, uh, and and also the discussion of um, price cap on, on, on gas. And I think here there is still a real lack of willingness at member state level to concede um, responsibility to, to the European Commission. So essentially, it's been playing the kind of classic executive role, um, putting forward ideas, opening the discussions, responding to the kind of the political will from the member states. But there are kind of limits on, on the extent to which um, the, the EC can really be a driver in this area. I think that what our tracker has shown is that um, the EU was one of the top organisations, along with Italy and Germany, that that was making deals in 2022. But what we can see that they're doing there is kind of creating the space, creating conditions in order for member states to kind of secure the specific supplies. Um, It's about sort of um, a commitment to um, exploration with other um, countries. It's about sort of ensuring that the investment in in infrastructure, which will be needed, is there. But the Commission can't sort of buy energy on behalf of the EU um, because it has no kind of storage facilities and no mechanisms um, for, for, for sharing that out. So um, the kind of the power, if you like, in driving forward energy sovereignty does still lie with the member states. Mm-hmm. And so you said that communication between member states and the European Commission has definitely like got definitely better in, in, in 2022. And can you expect, can we expect um, kind of seeing European approach to all energy deals in the future, maybe especially in in the prospect of a transition to renewable energies and uh, less imports of fossil fuels? Um, I mean, I think we're a long way off a kind of a common 
European approach um, on these things, but um, we are seeing minilateral collaborations um, develop among groups of member states, but also along with other um, uh, European players, um, Norway, the UK, and so on, as parts of kind of commitments among neighbouring states to to pool and share. And I think, you know, some of um, the key examples um, around wind energy in the north, around discussions around uh, gas transportation in the south, this um, Barcelona to Marseille, Barma pipeline um, that has been discussed between um, France, Portugal and Spain, with a view um, to that being suitable for repurposing for hydrogen um, in the future, so I think that what yeah what we're seeing grow is um is certainly a more kind of collaborative picture, and um, certainly in a sense a sense that in a world of continent-sized powers, um, we need to think more um, as a continent. Um, but I, I still feel that we're we're kind of a long way off um, being able to talk about real energy union um, at this point, um, despite the pressures to do so. So I want to move now to domestic disputes in the European Union about energy. And speaking of electricity in particular, the current energy crisis has sparked a lot of debate around reverting back to non-renewable energy resources, such as nuclear and coal. So would you be able to tell us whether the EU has recently made any changes to policy constraining or um, not constraining anymore the use of nuclear and coal power given the need to make energy demands? In, in terms of policy, no, there has been no shift. Um, the, um, uh, the, the the plans in terms of what um, fuels are acceptable for the transition and how long um, remain as agreed at the beginning of the year in the big discussions around what was called the taxonomy agreement. So what fuels constituted clean fuels for the purposes of investment um, in, in the transition. And, and, and then the, the kind of the practice, the reality um, is that we're seeing in member states that kind of the timelines um, in which they're thinking about these um, fuels has, um, has shifted slightly. So starting with nuclear, because I think the two things are quite different. Um, nuclear has had a mixed year in terms of its reputation um, within Europe. On the one hand, um, I think it has disappointed a lot of member states because we saw that the fact that uh, a lot of um, uh, reactors here in France um, had um, had to be closed for maintenance during the kind of the peak of the energy crisis or the peak of the kind of preparations for this winter through the last summer has kind of raised questions about the re- reliability of it um, as a source. And it meant that instead of being um, a state that could um, help supply electricity around neighbouring states within Europe, um, France had to kind of look at importing more during that period. But on the other hand, I think in terms of the sort of the supply chain, for the uh, for the raw materials um, and so on that are necessary um, for for nuclear power, um, we have seen a number of member states kind of looking more positively than um, than was previously the case at the beginning of this year as uh, at nuclear as um, a cleaner. Um, fuel. And certainly in Germany, um, which is one of the states that kind of was very committed to closing as quickly as possible, we've seen extensions of the lifetime of um, some of the nuclear um, plants um, and so on. So I think that the question of nuclear energy isn't settled within the EU, um, but then it wasn't. Um, At the beginning of the year, there was sort of very um, big differences of view, but it is still efficiently 
a transition fuel uh, as far as the EU is concerned. I think coal is a bit different. Um, there's um, clear consensus that um, coal needs to be phased out as, as quickly as we can for decarbonisation ends, but that we have seen the extension again of the lifetime of some coal-fired um, power plants, um, including in Germany and elsewhere, and um, the greater exploita- exploitation of um, brown coal um, and some of the kind of cleaner um, forms being pursued in in certain member states. I think here, as you made the distinction at the beginning of the conversation between the kind of the short and the medium term, I think there is a sense in some of the member states that um, uh, it is better to um, uh, to, to use this to kind of tide us through the very short term while we're scaling up renewable sources of energy than um, to accept kind of longer transitions um, uh, around other um, forms of fuel, such as kind of gas and nuclear. So this is kind of a, a question of whether you invest in things which we agree are genuinely clean for the long term or whether you invest in um, LNG regasification units and facilities and infrastructure, um, which will then kind of lock you in through the medium term, perhaps longer than was the intention. So I think, um, you know, this sort of um, distinction is is why we're seeing some decisions being made in 2022, that um, including from governments like that in Germany, um, uh, which include green parties, and and we weren't expecting such pragmatism from coming through um, in order to sort of meet the demands of of, of the current crisis. Yes. I want to go back to your point about how nuclear was perceived as unreliable in France, because this summer, France couldn't take full advantage of its nuclear plants due to water shortages to cool off its reactors. So it seems like climate change, the energy crisis, and and energy sources like nuclear are almost like unsuperable issues. How do you think then this whole conversation then definitely fits in the in the um, conversation on how to take advantage of this as much as possible in the short term with the idea that we need to get rid of these energy sources also for a matter of energy security. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right, that 2022 has been a really threatening year for Europeans on all fronts. Um, but the fact that we have seen some of the realities of uh, of climate change impacting in Europe from droughts to um, to wildfires uh, and so on has, has played an important role in ensuring that um, we didn't just simply redefine what the major security threats were as Europeans in 2023. We didn't go from a world where at the end of 2021, um, we the thing we were most concerned about was climate change to kind of just switching to thinking, OK, it's all now about um, pushing Russia back. Um, there has been a real um, effort, I think, um, in, in, in almost all EU capitals without exception perhaps the exception being Hungary, um, to try and deal with both things at the same time um, in 2022. And if you look at um, communications like um, the Repower EU strategy back in May, that shows very clearly um, the centrality that clean energy is perceived as need to, needed, needing to play um, in um, building up our energy security uh, over, the, over the next period. I think that there is still some kind of scepticism in terms of the investments that um, European governments are, are making about whether we can build a kind of sustainable energy security, which encompasses both 
you know, dealing with both of those threats. But I think that 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 sort of has to be the sort of the focus of minds now um, is um, kind of going back to this idea of European example leadership on the green agenda that we need to show that it is possible, because if we having kind of um, pushed forward the European Green Deal, having sort of played this role globally as, as a climate leader um, for a number of years, if we step back from this at this point, then I think that there are huge repercussions um, for the, the global consensus more broadly about the necessity of doing this even in difficult economic times. So it sort of feels incumbent on us, not only for the threat um, of climate change that is posed to us, but also um, for keeping the, the rest of the global effort on course that, that we do yeah stick with that stick with that vision well this was a very thoughtful conversation on the current state and the future of european energy security thank you again Mr. Anderson, for taking the time to join our podcast and share your precious insights thank you for having me